seconds. I'm watching the screen. Yeah. Welcome to today's serious security seminar. Uh, we have with us today Dr. Charles Flieger, who is probably known to many of you who have either used or or read the Flieger and Flieger textbook. We actually have with us today both Charles and Sherry Flieger, uh, but today we'll have our talk by Charles Flieger, who has uh, a distinguished career in information security and a, a very broad career. Uh, he received his PhD from Penn State, uh, moved on to a number of positions both in industry and academia, including, I guess, University of Tennessee. University of Tennessee. Uh, several companies at which I, I, he's probably hold, held three or four positions that would have been called uh, chief security officer if the position had existed at the time. Uh, has. Uh, been the chair of the IEEE Technical Committee on Security and Privacy, uh, as, as well as various other academic contributions, and is now serving as an independent consultant in information security, uh, just generally helping people get it right <laughs> at, at all levels, from, from policy to technical to to what we'll hear about today, which is uh, getting beyond the techies and understanding security. So, thank you very much, Professor Clifton. Uh, first off, I want to say how pleased I am to be here at the Purdue campus. Uh, we've had a nice two-day visit to campus, and I've gotten to meet a number of really interesting faculty members and and students and undergraduate students and graduate students, and it's been really challenging to the brain to keep up with all of the different ideas that have been floating around. You know, in one conversation, someone will ask a question about crypto, and another con conversation, someone will say, what about policy? In a different conversation, the question comes up about uh, optimal use of things, or operating systems, or database management systems, or privacy. It's been really, really interesting seeing the way that all of these thoughts are coming together uh, I credit the Serious Research Group for being able to bring together in a multidisciplinary way so many of these different viewpoints and different perspectives in a very positive and supportive uh, approach. The talk that I'm going to give to you today is not going to be a heavy, detailed research seminar. No. From the beginning, I'm, I'm, no false advertising, the, the approach that I'm going to take is Based on my experience, as Professor Clifton said, I did a lot of things outside of academia in, in companies where I did uh, both consulting kinds of things and internal protection kinds of things. As a consequence, I've dealt with lots of users and lots of people who are responsible for putting together systems, putting together programs, putting together environments for computing use. And what I want to talk about today, then, is some of the dumb ideas that you hear out there. Okay. I realize that I'm talking largely to people who have a strong interest in security and perhaps a computing background, perhaps a, pardon me, perhaps a policy background, perhaps an economics background, perhaps a management background, but in all instances, it's focused on security. And so 
we, in a sense, are the professionals, the insiders to whom I'm talking today. And what I want to talk about are the other people, the people outside this room, the people who make security decisions without benefit of knowledge. And so I take as my um, lead on this, there we go, take as my lead on this an article that some of you may have run across. If you haven't run across it before, I encourage you to look it up. Uh, it's a fun read. A gentleman named Marcus Ranum, who is who arguably the inventor of the firewall, um, wrote a, an opinion piece a couple of years ago entitled The Six Dumbest Ideas in Computer Security. And I read it, and I really, really respect what Marcus does. He's a, a very smart person, so that's why I'm encouraging you to read it. And I looked at it, and I said, that's an interesting list. Yeah, I, I can agree with many of the things on his list. But then I started thinking, there got to be some other dumb ideas in computer security. So I did what every good researcher does. I went to Google. And I said, tell me about dumb ideas in computer security. And I got 3,510,000 hits for dumb ideas in computer security. Obviously, a lot of this had to do with mirroring sites that were reflecting the same article that Marcus had written or comments on the article Marcus had written. And I clearly didn't go through anywhere close to all 3,510,000 of these. But some of them then were just keying off of dumb computer security or dumb computer or dumb security and combinations of those words. So my conclusion is either it's a really important topic because it's come up three million times to Google, or there are lots and lots of dumb ideas related to computer security. I'll leave you to figure out which of those is the appropriate interpretation. But let me come in then with my own list of dumb ideas and what I think are the, the reasons for these dumb ideas. First problem is computer security professionals all talk to each other. As I said, we've had a really good interchange over the last two days, talking to faculty, talking to students, and exchanging views on computer security. Okay. Good, enjoyable. But we're all talking to one another, and we all say, you know, this is a policy issue, and the world really needs to address this policy issue, but we're not the right ones to cause it to exist. We're not in law enforcement. We're not in the legislatures. We're not uh, senior government administrators. We're not in positions that we can actually influence a lot of this. We do influence by what we write, what we say to our friends and neighbors, what we, uh, what we, we read, what we buy, but largely we talk to each other. We need to get to where the outsiders understand us. We can't just talk to each other. So it's not that the outsiders are dumb. These ideas may be characterized as dumb ideas, but it's not that they're dumb people. It's just that they're uninformed. They don't understand the problems and limitations in computer security. And to a certain degree, people hear what they want to hear. Uh, dumb ideas are not new. What you will find in my slides is there's about um, 16 slides of content and then two full slides of references. And I strongly believe in going back to the original references and reading things because a lot of smart people have written a lot of important things. So you're going to see references, many of which are 30 and more years old. These, these ideas, these dumb ideas that are floating around in the marketplace aren't new. Um, 
we have to then be able to communicate both the simplicity and the complexity of our discipline. So let's start into our dumb ideas list. Dumb idea number one. The marketplace thinks they can do security later. Okay? And they're expecting, just as this picture shows, a miracle to occur in the middle. We'll put the whole system together, and then at the last minute, we're going to call in these security engineers. And they're going to bring in their bag of security fairy dust. And they're going to sprinkle some of the security fairy dust on the system, and it'll all be better. And I'm glad that you laughed at me, but I have honestly been in situations where I was expected to bring my bag. We're going to design the system. We've got the system already designed. It's already out for bids. It's being constructed right now. Make it secure for us. And I won't tell you all of the systems. I won't tell you the systems on which this is true, other than to say the worst one was a very major, very visible, and very critical military system. You know, they were out there building away on the system, and then they expected security folks to come in at the last minute and tweak it a little bit to make it secure. We as professionals know it don't work that way. You don't get security unless you think about it early on. Now, Defense Science Board, early 1970s. I think the date is actually 1970. We can see from the reference list. Two quotes. It's virtually impossible to verify that a large software system is completely free of errors and anomalies. and System failure modes are not thoroughly understood, cataloged, or protected against. Okay. That same st statement is true today. It hasn't changed truth value in at least 30-some years, at least 30-plus years. We see patches galore. The finding of the Defense Science Board was strongly that penetrate and patch doesn't work. Okay. But what's one of the most popular approaches to computer security today. Bring in penetration test. Bring in the red team. Bring in a smart guy. Bring in a hacker. Let the person hack away at my system for, oh, we'll be generous. We'll give two days. Okay? And then at the end of the two days, this smart person will reveal to me all of the flaws in the system. I'll patch those flaws, and it'll all be over. Anderson's report from the early 1970s says this is exactly what we were doing in the late 1960s, and it wasn't working. And surprise, it's not working any better now. Okay. So we need to communicate to the outside world that you can't retrofit security. Unless you start with security as one of your premises, one of your system requirements, it's not going to magically appear later on. Okay, what's the second fallacy? The second fallacy is we'll do privacy later. I mean, privacy should be easier than security okay? because we should just be able to sort of paper over things or conceal various pieces. Okay. Again, early 1970s, Willis Ware with the Rand Corporation did some wonderful work. He chaired a panel on, the, on, on behalf of the Department of at what was then called Health, and Educa Health, Education, and Welfare. And his panel put forth a set of fair information practices. You know, about once a year, you get a little 
form in the mail in your bank statement or your credit card statement and it's always written in minute type and it says here's what we're going to do with your name and address and your account number and your balance and uh, all the charges that you've made. We're going to spread it to these people and these people and these people and we're going to take money from these people for doing it and we're here are your rights, basically zero, but here's what we're going to do for you. Here's what we're going to do to you. The reason you get that form is directly related to the Willis-Ware Committee of the mid-1970s. Their set of fair uh, information practices essentially said, among other things, tell the users what you're going to do with their data. And then do only that with their data. Don't, don't do a bait and switch. Um, right now, we have an absolute mishmash of privacy in this country. We have laws that protect privacy of banking records. We have laws that protect privacy of health records. We have laws that protect the privacy of student education records. We have laws that govern what the government can do with data. But it's all sort of a mishmash. The laws don't coordinate. There are gaps, obviously. And worse, there are overlapping situations. What do you do with a student who is taking out a bank loan to pay for medical expenses. What law applies? Well, the answer is it's not really clear which law applies. But because we have this mishmash of privacy policies and privacy technologies and privacy requirements, we don't have a uniform approach to privacy. Read sometime the European Union's Privacy Directive. The European Union Privacy Directive, again, comes directly from the Fair Information Practices. If you read Willis Ware's group's report on Fair Information Practices, and then you look at the EU Privacy Directive side by side, you're going to see it's almost line by line the same thing. Where a report says you should use data only for the purpose for which you collect it, EU says you should use data only for the purpose for which you collect it. Where report says you should provide adequate measures to protect the, the security of private data, EU privacy regulations say you should use adequate security measures to protect the privacy of, uh, of sensitive data. Line by line, they agree almost straight down. The European Union read the Ware report. The U.S. has not read or failed to understand it and is still laboring under the misperception that we can fix it by adding privacy on later. Okay. Once again, we can show this doesn't work. I have a reference here to uh, a wonderful researcher named uh, Latanya Sweeney who has shown the the capability of data aggregation. And she took, just as an, an example, the governor of the state of Massachusetts. She happened to be in Massachusetts at the time. Because the governor was a public figure, there was in the newspaper an announcement of when his birth date was. Okay. So she found out when his birth date was, not even his birth year, just the, the month and day of his birth date, she knew where the governor's mansion was located, so she got his zip code, and she knew he was a male. 
those three pieces of information were sufficient to narrow down to three people. There were only three people in the, the geographic zip code area who matched on those three qualities, one being the governor, two being two other, two other uh, people. What that says is any information that you think was collected privately and was anonymized because all you reported was zip code or birth date, all of that information with the appropriate aggregation techniques can be brought forth and can trace back to a single individual. So I strongly recommend reading Sweeney's work as cautionary and reading Ware's work as where we should be headed and then Go out and preach to the preach to the audience. Preach to anybody who will listen about the effects of privacy and the fact that we're not going to have good privacy in this country unless we actually work to achieve it. So what's another dumb idea? Well, another dumb idea is that encryption cures all. I told you I was going to reflect some of my experiences from consulting. Um, Two, two different anecdotes. Anecdote number one is I got a call from one of my clients about two months ago. Client works for Department of Health and Human Services. And the client said their particular unit in HHS was running around like mad because they had gotten a mandate from the um, chief security officer for the uh, chief technical officer, pardon me, for HHS, saying all laptops have to be encrypted. And so she said, fine, we'll go out and encrypt. What are the, what's the best product? Well, as you well know, there are lots of different products on the market. They do different things. They operate different ways. But I, I said to her, let's back up a step. And let's look at what we're really trying to protect. Well, it turns out that this person was working on a program that um, had social workers. And the social workers had case files of the, the people with whom they were in contact. And they needed periodically to sync those case files back with the home office and report to the home office. So where were these social workers? Well, some of them were private individuals and were walking around with laptops. Some of them were in university settings and had Unix computers. Some of them were in major uh, professional groups and had networks of computers. So all sorts of different things. So it was a situation in which one product wasn't going to fit all. So then we got into the issue of, well, what interacts with what? If we encrypt with this, is it easy to decrypt with this? Are there any formatting issues? How, how is the key going to be managed, et cetera, et cetera? And it became a really significant issue. Fortunately, as I say, this group, which was just a small piece within HHS, asked the right question. They said, well, how do we do encryption? What, what does encryption mean in this context? What, what's the best way for us to accommodate encryption in this, uh, in, a, in this setting. Many other parts of HHS, we, we surmise, aren't even asking that question. Someone on high has said, use encryption. Encryption is good. Okay. Well, encryption is good. Encryption is great. But encryption has problems. Okay. The big issue that we're all aware of is key management. How do I manage crypto keys? Because strong keys tend to be long. 
20 digits, 30 digits, 40 digits, 50 digits, hexadecimal, or some passphrase that's 50, 60, 70 characters long. A long key is very hard to remember. Writing it down has a certain set of problems. Storing it somewhere has a different set of problems. So it's not just encryption that's the problem, it's managing these keys, communicating the keys if I have to share something. If I have a laptop and for some reason I have to swap laptops with a colleague, or the colleague needs access to some of the files on my laptop, how do we exchange our keys? How do we do this in a secure manner? There are obviously in programs implementation flaws. These are relatively rare. Uh, there's usually a fairly strong testing process associated with encryption algorithms. So these, these tend to be fairly rare. Algorithm weaknesses pop up from time to time with you know, just absolute randomness. You never know when an algorithm is, is going to uh, exhibit a flaw that, that will be detected. But the biggest problem is this bottom line problem, that is data in the clear. Anybody been reading the papers in the last, um, it's been in the last two weeks, TJX Corporation, two months ago roughly, or one month ago roughly, they announced a major security problem, and the problem was that uh, the, the credit card numbers of many of their customers had potentially been exposed, and this, this exposure stretches back for uh, a couple of years. they used encryption. So they, they should have been safe. No, they weren't safe. And the reason they weren't safe was actually twofold. One part of the problem was you can't always use encrypted data. At some point you have to decrypt the data in order to use it. And as soon as you decrypt it, which we in the field call placing it in the clear, as soon as you make it in the clear, then whoops, somebody can get a hold of it. And if they get a hold of it after it's been decrypted, after it's made available again, then it's exposed. Okay, so that's problem number one. Problem number two is, and, and TJX Corporation did have that problem, but the reason they had that problem was problem number two, unknown whether it was an insider or an outsider, someone installed malicious software on their computers. The malicious software is believed, the analysis is still preliminary, the malicious software is believed to have had the ability to decrypt. Okay. It was believed to have access to the encryption keys and, or decryption keys, and the algorithm. Okay. So all that beautiful encrypted data that's nicely protected on TJX's computers is not protected. It's not protected at all. So encryption is very powerful. Encryption is good. Don't misinterpret my message. Encryption is a wonderful thing. Encryption is very strong. There are some excellent encryption algorithms. Using them is a strong form of protection. But we have very few true end-to-end -end encryption techniques. End-to-end -end meaning from the moment it first appears in the computer until the moment it is used. As I described, when it first goes in, there's a period before it gets encrypted. So it's exposed here. 
Then we go through a fairly long period when it is encrypted, and then there's another period here at the end after it is decrypted prior to its being used. It's exposed there. So we've got that exposure, plus we've got the exposure that TJX faced that a malicious agent had somehow gotten in there and had subverted the encryption process. So all that encryption was doing nothing. It was not protecting their data the way they thought it should. Remember my story about security dust, security fairy dust. Many people think encryption is the security fairy dust. Just sprinkle a little encryption on top of it and that'll make all problems go away. And it's true, encryption does solve a lot of problems, but not every problem. Okay. Now the other anecdote that I want to relate is another customer interaction when a customer came to me and said, um, which is better, encryption or an intrusion detection system? And after I got up off the floor, my answer was, well, um, tell me a little bit more about what you're trying to do. Because those two are usually not thought of as being opposites or as being complementary approaches. The customer essentially had some amount of money to spend. And the amount of money would buy one of two things, either an intrusion detection system or an encryption approach. And one sales representative had been in and had said, intrusion detection systems are really wonderful. They're exactly what you need to solve your problem. Another sales representative or magazine article or something had said encryption is the most powerful protection tool that we have available. So to this person, the two were exchangeable. They were, they were comparable. Okay. So it was a valid question to this person, which is better? Should I have encryption or should I have an intrusion detection system? And with a little explanation to point out that the two were solving entirely different kinds of problems, the person came around and said, ah, well, I, I can understand that the question I asked is not the question I should be asking. Again, fortunately, that person asked the question. Many times, the person isn't going to have two sources of information. Many times, the sales rep is going to come in and say, intrusion detection systems are really great things, and they can catch ha hackers before they even think about attacking your system. So buy my intrusion detection system and install it, and you're safe. People want the silver bullet. Silver bullet doesn't exist. So encryption is a very, very strong tool, but we have to make sure the outside community understands it has its limitations too. OK, another misperception out in the marketplace, and we actually foster this ourselves, is we say either you have perfect security or you have nothing. I think the reason we get this is because of the Defense Department. Because the Defense Department, um, many years ago, went on an approach where they wanted trusted computer systems. And they had this uh, system designed for how to determine how trustworthy a system is and what to, to look for in a trustworthy system and how to rank the trustworthiness of a system. And they had a nice rating scale. What you found was some people responsible for projects would say, I need the best security I can get because this is a system that's protecting the United States of America. So I want the best system I can get. Give me an A1 system. Well, 
there were very few A1 systems because they were extremely difficult to produce, costly pr to produce, and met very, very, very specialized needs. The rest of the community didn't understand that. They said, you know, A1 is good. I want an A. You know, student in a class. How many students come in and say, I'm looking for a C plus in this class? Well, okay, some do. Um, most students come in and say, I'm looking for a good grade in this class. I want an A. I'd be satisfied with a B plus, but I really deserve an A. Most students are really in there to learn. Okay. Coming in to a system design and saying, I want just sort of average run-of-the-mill security. Doesn't sound like the right answer. People want to be able to say, I've done the best I can do for security. I've bought the most expensive security solution. I've bought the, the most highly ranked solution. I've, you know, I've really put uh, effort and, and energy into this to show that security is important. And the question is, what did they end up with in the end? Well, they ended up with a system that was scarcely usable and far more expensive than they should have gotten. So to look at either perfect security or nothing is, is a false way of looking at it. If you're riding on a tightrope, yes, you're either on the tightrope or you're not on the tightrope. And the consequences of not being on the tightrope are pretty catastrophic. Okay. Security doesn't go that way. Security really is a continuum. You can have a little security, you can have a moderate amount of security, you can have a whole lot of security. You can have a little risk, a medium amount of risk, a whole lot of risk. You can have a few vulnerabilities, moderate number of vulnerabilities, a lot of vulnerabilities. You can have a very attractive uh, uh, situation for an attacker, a moderately attractive, an unattractive one. And you need to balance what you're doing against what your capabilities are. <clears throat> So security is a continuum. It is very difficult, if not impossible, to counter all threats. Why? Well, you start doing a threat analysis, and the worst uh, scenarios start coming to mind. You call me in to do a threat analysis for you, and I'm going to start talking about planes falling out of the sky and accidentally dropping onto your building. And you'll say, but wait, I'm concerned about security. And I'll say, yes, but the computer that's running your system is in this building. And if a plane just falls onto your building, that's going to do bad things for your computer system. And then I'll mention New Orleans and Hurricane Katrina. And then I'll mention fires. And then I'll mention vandals. And then, you know, I can go through a whole litany of things before I even get to the software. And then I start getting on the software. And well, this could happen to it, that could happen to it. You could have malicious hackers from, from uh, unknown countries attacking you. You could have insiders going after your system. You could have a disgruntled former employee who wants to wreak havoc on you. You could have a 14-year-old kid who is just exploring and happens onto your site. It's going to be impossible to counter all possible threats. So what you really have to do is look at what's a reasonable degree of protection how much risk remains, and how much risk am I willing to accept? Okay. So instead of this much risk, I install controls and reduce the amount to this much. I install some more controls and reduce the amount to this much. 
and I say, this is the, an amount of risk with which I can live. Have I, in my own personal house, reinforced the roof so that if a jet plane happens to fall out of the sky onto the roof of my house, I won't be injured? No. And I suspect that none of you have either. Okay. It's a risk you're willing to accept because it's a very small risk with catastrophic result, but very small risk. What do we need? We need some ways of measuring risk. We need some justifications for stopping, knowing how much is enough security in a given situation. And we need some creative approaches, some good architectures that let us optimize our security result given the amount that we've spent on it. Okay, so we need to stop looking at security as something that I can have perfection in and instead look at how much security do I really need here. Um, some of my customers, well, I can go ahead and give the example. I have a customer in the Department of Labor and that customer is working with a very, very small system, very low risk system. They get some forms that people fill out, individuals fill out these forms, mail them in, and on a small number of these forms, and it's a very small number of these forms, there is some personally identifiable information, okay, names and social security numbers. Most of the forms have none of that stuff. Most of the forms are just statistical data collected for very good reasons for Bureau of, of uh, Labor Statistics purposes. Okay. So they've got this system and it has some security issues. The worst problem is this form actually comes from the IRS. It's a form that companies file along with their taxes, but it's not really one of the tax forms. And it doesn't really have much to do with the IRS, except they are supposed to get some of the data from the form as well. Again, no sensitivity or very, very low sensitivity associated with, with the system. But IRS gets in there and says, oh, got to have security, got to have lots of security because, you know, the taxpayers interests are our foremost concern and so we got to protect this. So until I got in on this, the people who were running this, this project for the Department of Labor were saying, oh, bad things, got to go out and do this, got to, got to get this, got to check all the employees, got to you know, screen them at the door and make sure that they're not remembering anything that they shouldn't remember once they leave the door from this building and you know, got, to, got to encrypt all of our lines and they were going wild with protection mechanisms. Well, I'm a taxpayer, as most of you are too. And all I could see was a whole bunch of my tax dollars kept going into the protection of this system that really didn't deserve protection. So I characterize my role in this system as keeping the security requirements sensible. If you can believe it, I'm a security professional and I'm saying, no, don't do that. Don't do that for security reasons. Ignore that. That's not a problem. Don't spend money to protect that. Don't worry about it. You know, focus on this. Yes, that's worth doing. Protect it this way. Do this, but don't spend exorbitant amounts of money. So security is a continuum. And what we have to do is get to where we can understand what is the risk, 
What is the threat? How much am I controlling? How much remains afterwards? And am I comfortable with that amount of remaining risk? And if I'm not comfortable, then I want to apply more controls. And if I am comfortable, then I should leave it alone at that point. Uh, you may not be able to tell from this picture exactly what it is. It's the Tour de France from a couple of years ago. Lance Armstrong is wearing the yellow jersey. He's on the ground. Um, um, Jan Ulrich is the one in the turquoise jersey to the, to the right of the picture. And what's happened is Lance Armstrong is coming along racing on a fairly flat surface. So he's going at a pretty good clip. And there are pedestrians, as you can see, all along the side of this. And they're cheering on the... the, the cyclists as they come along and one of these pedestrians had a bag and was just sort of standing out on the the side there with the bag apparently out into the um into the road surface and as armstrong came along something on his bike i don't know if it was the handlebar or a pedal or what caught the bag and that was enough to pull armstrong over and pull over another cyclist who then crashed into armstrong and you see ulrich coming along on the side, avoiding this, this crash. Tremendous crash could have cost Armstrong the Tour de France. It did not cost him the Tour de France. He got back on his bike in almost no time at all and made a marvelous, marvelous uh, recovery on this. But what does this have to do with computer security? Well, it has to do with separation. In most sporting events, you have spectators and you have competitors. And you have a stadium, for example, where the football players are all out in the middle and the spectators are all up in the stands. And we keep those two separated for good reason. Okay? We don't want the spectators down on the field coaching. We don't want the spectators down on the field to receive a pass themselves. Okay? So we want, we want separation. But the marketplace in computing doesn't understand the value of separation. Let me give you a history lesson. History lesson is back in the 1970s, IBM had big behemoth mainframe computers. And they had two hardware enforced memory states. That means, or two hardware enforced uh, execution states. And that means that some programs could do some things, other programs could do all of those things, and more. So the system that enforced protection ran with higher privilege, and the ordinary user programs ran with lower pr privilege. DEC doubled this. They said, we're going to produce four hardware states. And they ultimately assigned three of them to the operating system and one to the user. Okay. There was a novel design in the late 1980s by a consortium of Intel and Siemens where the number of states was going to be something like 2 million, if I remember my numbers correctly. I think it was two of the 31st separate states. And I was about ready to lead a project to figure out how you take advantage of 2 million different states of execution, hardware enforced, and build an operating system that, that would take advantage of that. Um, the project died for a bunch of unrelated reasons. But it would have been an interesting challenge. I think two million is probably more than you need. Two is probably on the low end. And IBM, as a matter of fact, 
improved on that too and went to four as soon as they went virtual and had some other tricky techniques to split up the number of states even further than that. So in, in, in some, what was happening is the operating system vendors were saying, we need to have separation. We need to protect our most critical applications and most critical parts of the system from things that are less critical. Now, why do we have a problem with Trojan horses today? Because the IBM PC and its clones and the Apple both run or are only starting to get away from single state hardware. That says any Trojan horse can do anything on the machine. There is no protected space. So any Trojan horse that you pick up from anywhere is not, uh, is not separable. Um, in 2007, we're only starting to get back to the notion of two, two states of execution. So we had a good idea in 1970, which 37 years later, we're only now coming back to. Okay. Controlled separation, <coughs> excuse me, controlled separation is a very important quality in computing. Um, read the references, Neumann's paper on PSOS and Carger's paper on uh, the Vax VMM. Very good papers explaining what you want to do with separation and why separation is a good security primitive. Final fallacy. It's easy, we can do security ourselves. I can't tell you how many customers call me in late in the game saying, well, we've tried some security approaches and here's what we've done and here's what we've done. We've done this and we've done that. And it just isn't working. And the reason it isn't working is they've committed all of the flaws from the first five fallacies that I've presented doing it themselves. Okay. We all know that program complexity does inhibit security. The more complex it gets, the harder it is to secure it. A uh, quote from Turing was, uh, this would be the, the 1950s. By the time machines are able to do such things, we shan't know how they do it. And I think we've gotten to that state very clearly with most of our modern computing devices. We don't know what they do. Applications, utilities, infrastructure, and operating systems are all mixed together in the same memory space. Uh, web data delivery, <coughs> excuse me, web data delivery, display, and fetch are mixed so that <coughs> the web is able to broadcast to you a piece of code that you should run on its behalf. Okay. Sony and its rootkit is another example of you don't know what's going on. You put in a CD, you think you're just playing a CD on your, your computer, and yet it installs a piece of software. Um, and we're getting the IP stack in all sorts of things, telephones and thermostats and refrigerators. Too much computing in my mind. But read the references. Okay, so what do I say are the smart ideas in computer security? First is we can help. Yeah. We security professionals, those of you in this room who are going to go out and do something in security in your, in your professional careers, keep in mind the, some of the comments that I've made today. Keep in mind that security isn't easy, that privacy isn't easy, that you don't add them in at the last minute, that you have to be very diligent in how you do it. Beware the widget du jour. Beware the, the silver bullet, the, the solution that's going to fix everything. Because it's not going to fix everything. It's, gonna, uh, it's going to, to complicate matters. And finally, 
recognize that even well-known failings still fail. Look at the examples that I cited from the 1970s, things that were known to be harmful in the 1970s. They're still harmful today. Single-state architecture, we got away from that in the early 1970s, and then we got back to it in the 1980s when the PC first appeared on the market, and we're only now getting away from it again. So we need to um, recognize what has failed in the past and be able to take steps that will protect us in the future. Okay, so my, my summary idea is you as computer professionals or as, as people who will become computer professionals are going to go out in the world and you're going to interact with non-computer people and certainly non-software people and certainly non-computer policy people. When you do, keep in mind some of these messages. Realize that those people out there think security is easy. You know, little security fairy dust will fix everything or you know, pass a law on privacy and that'll you know, protect us all from everything that we need. Um, use encryption. Just a little encryption, that, that fixes it. It's true. A little encryption does a lot of good. It's not the whole picture. It's true. Some security solutions can be retrofitted. Some are designed to be retrofitted, but not all. So keep in mind the lessons that I've mentioned here, and at the same time, keep in mind the references that I've pointed to. Now, I'll put up the slides of references. There, as I say, are two slides. I'll leave those up for a minute, and at the same time, I will invite questions from anybody in the audience who happens to have a, a question on my talk. We have about four minutes for questions. Yes. Do you believe that there has been a lack in academia uh, towards studying things like that? Because, I mean, I see people on continuous basis, either in Purdue or in any other organization, they focus on techniques for coding, they focus on networking, they focus on the technology itself, but they don't focus on the people and the behavior of people and the behavior of organizations. So do you think there's, there's a big lack of that in academia? And, would that help illustrate these problems in a scientific manner? That's an excellent question. I, I thank you for asking it. It's a very thoughtful question. Um, I don't think that's a failing of academia. Let me, let me phrase it in a positive sense. I told you I've been very impressed by coming here at Purdue, and one of the things that impresses me is the Sirius Institute, which has been able to bring together people from different disciplines. Not everybody in there is a networking engineer. Not everybody in there writes code for a living. Okay. And what they've, they're doing is bringing in different philosophies, different viewpoints, different approaches to do exactly what you say, you know, to look at the policy issues, to look at the ethical use issues, to look at the, um, the ease of use issues, uh, to look at profiling issues. Okay. And your question is very well put. There's a, a tremendous emphasis in all of computing education on the fun stuff. And to a lot of students, the fun stuff is writing code, operating systems, networks, compilers, databases, you know. That's the fun stuff. And some of these other areas, such as the policy issues, such as the ethical issues, those are 
less attractive to students, so departments may not offer them as courses. They may, they may not work them into courses in appropriate places. So I think your, your question is a, a perfectly valid question. Uh, I don't see it as much as a failing of academia as just this is the direction computer science education has taken. And you know, organizations like Sirius are doing a great job of pulling together other professionals into the mix. Good question. Yes? Yeah, can you uh, comment a little bit on your perspective that whole uh, quantification of risk uh, management was on an earlier slide? So my, my background is in uh, data. <laughs> and so you could have a, a loss of that data, which can be translated into a dollar cost, either impact the business or cost to reproduce the data yep. again. And that failure can happen anywhere from a uh, data integrity problem all the way to, you know, the far yep. end would be like a yep. nuclear exchange. And so you're managing that risk, right? Yep. And I'm gonna what is to the impact of that? Question very, very quickly because yeah. we've got one minute and 15 seconds left. The question is uh, comment on risk. The answer that I have to give you is risk is very, very hard to measure. What we'd love to have is nice quantitative data. We have insurance companies have great quantitative data on life expectancy and things that occur frequently. But computer problems occur infrequently enough that it's difficult to bring together a big enough base of data to, to determine risk values accurately. Add to that the fact that many computer security incidents aren't reported. So the, getting this, this collection of data is really difficult. Um, I agree risk analysis, risk measurement needs to occur. It's a very difficult thing to, to do. Uh, the best approaches that I have seen have been the more subjective or fuzzy approaches. Instead of saying your risk level is 68%, say your risk level is medium to medium high, which isn't as satisfying uh, and may not give proper guidance, but that, that may be where we have to, to work for a while. And I want to thank you all. We're out of time. Thanks. Since we're, na since we're now off the air, I'll be happy to take any other questions. Just needed to, to finish that one off.